right. Thanks for listening while we take that short break here at RevolutionRadioFreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's live broadcast of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett on the web at truthjihad.com, where you can click on the Substack link to subscribe to my stuff at Substack. You will get early access to the archives of these and my pre-recorded shows. And you can also support revolution.radio by going to revolution.radio and you can uh, donate. Uh, there are all sorts of ways to support revolution.radio, the greatest free speech network out there. So let's get going with the second hour here. We have uh, Matt Eret coming back. Matthew Eret has the Canadian Patriot website. He's just published a book called The Clash of Two Americas with co-author Cynthia Chung. And he just published a new and quite informative article on how China's Gorbachev was flushed in 1989. And of course, China's Gorbachev was Zhao Ziyang, somebody I hadn't heard so much about before I read the article. And so, as always, Matthew Eret is highly informative with a very interesting interpretation of history and where we may be going. So let's see if we have him on the line yet. Hey, welcome, Matt. Are you there? Yes, I am, Kevin. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, you're coming through loud and clear. Good to have you back. Fantastic. It's always great to be back. Yeah. So, boy, we, you know, you you write so fast, it's hard to keep up. Um, <laughs> should we start with your book on the Clash of the Two Americas, Volume One, which takes us through the founding of the American Republic right up through the turn of the 20th century? Or should we talk about China's Gorbachev first? I was thinking we could do sort of half an hour of each or something like that. Yeah, sure. Whatever uh, suits you best. Um, we can start with the book first and then uh, transition into uh, Zhao Ziyang in more recent times. I, I think that that's a lawful thing to do. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And keep so, in mind that the book is volume one of volume two that I, I wrote with my wife. Yes. Okay. So Cynthia Chung is your wife. Okay. Indeed. Yes. Okay. Shout out to Cynthia. So yeah, it's, it's quite a book and it, it's, uh, it, it kind of follows a long standing tendency to, um, to, to in, in Western thought, uh, on, you know, in, in this point of view, everybody is either platonic or Aristotelian and, you're taking a kind of more platonic view in a certain sense. Of course, not all Platonists would be as sort of optimistic and uh, pro-development as you are. But do you, do you see that the two Americas, these two sides that you see in perpetual struggle for the soul of the United States, uh, one side being the Malthusian kind of bankster elite and the other side being its opposition, the people who have a, a positive vision of what can be accomplished in life, uh, kind of a, both a spiritually engaged and uh, believing in genuine human progress. Are these more or less identifiable with, with Plato and Aristotle or not? That's a great question, Kevin. Um, I didn't think you were going to jump down the philosophical <laughs> approach so, <laughs> so that. directly, yeah. but that's great. No, I think that that's the way you have to do it, um, because if you don't approach history from the standpoint of a battle epistemologically over the mind, then you can't really make sense of things very well. So the fact that you you actually are doing it that way is great. And I think that when you read the writings of a lot of the original uh, people who made the 
singularity of world history known as, you know, that, that transpired in 76, 1776, if you look at how they were thinking, um, people like Benjamin Franklin were certainly uh, devout practitioners of uh, Plato's method. He even said, you know, I, I, I model my life on Confucius, Socrates, and Jesus. That's, that's what Ben Franklin uh, described in his letters. Um, and I think the idea of a world of becoming that is always being organized ever more perfectly to a higher, a higher reality of being, this idea that there is a higher – there's two realities, right? A divine reality where things – where truth in its pure sense, uh, perfection, beauty in the pure sense exist – but that is not something we can encounter in, in our senses that are something that grew out of the becoming world, the lower world of matter and forces of matter, which is constantly in flux, constantly changing. So that's Plato's being and becoming. Uh, but that they are connected in the sense that the realm of the of the becoming, as Plato develops in his Phaedo dialogue, you know, the, where he has Socrates, uh, the, the day he's going to take the hemlock and die after he's been found guilty for corrupting the minds of the youth uh, by the demos. Um, the, the point in that dialogue, or one of the many points on the immortality of the soul is, is that there is a connection and that the the realm of the becoming is constantly self-perfecting or calibrating towards the higher divine domain. And so the idea that this, that a more perfect union could be created or a government founded upon a more perfect union is a very paradoxical thing for an Aristotelian because in an Aristotelian, which it, who is, I, I think of as somebody who is really stuck in definitions Aristotle likes giving like closed crystallized definitions of, you know, you want to know what justice is? This is exactly what it is. Memorize it. There's one for the master, one for the slave, one for the female, one for the male. And um, there's no real principle to it. And it's no, not really very open for new discoveries. Um, but they have a problem with the idea of a more perfect union because it's either if it's perfect, it can't be more perfect. Or if it's something that's more or less, it's, you know, it has nothing to do with perfection. Um, whereas I think the, the minds that crafted that formulation of words had a very different idea of the type of government and the point in my, my book, the reason why I, I call it the unfinished symphony volume one from 1776 to 1901 is that it never, it wasn't a completed product in 1776 or 1783 when the peace of Paris was signed. And, um, you know, the, the painting on the cover is a painting by Benjamin West, of Ben Franklin and the, the American delegation in, in, uh, in Paris who were there to sign the peace agreement with the British after six years of fighting. Now, the British never showed up, the delegation, right? And they, they didn't accept the terms in a spiritual sense, although they agreed to stop the war. So they, the painting was never completed. And I, I think that it speaks volumes to the nature of the uncompleted nature of the American Revolution itself, which, as we've seen over the ensuing 250 years, there has been a deep state sort of treacherous a component that had always been aligned to the oligarchical imperial order that never removed itself after that 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 victory and has worked to corrupt it from within as part of an international um, you know some people call it deep state some people call it shadow government whatever but there's definitely uh, an America at war with itself and many of the American presidents who die while in office and in fact you could say every single American president all eight of them plus Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, who died while in office, and I say Martin Luther King because I think of him as presidential material, as a moral leader. Uh, they were all acting upon a similar principle that was anti-imperial. It was anti uh, the thing that we've come to know and despise of the U.S. in recent decades. But they were all standing up and, and trying to invoke that same conception that was there in Ben Franklin's mind earlier.
clear on. And your take on this is is different, although I think spiritually you're sympathetic to people like Peter Simpson, who has been on the show defending the anti-federalists. His view is that the real kind of two Americas was, on the one hand, those resisting centralized tyranny and attempts to sort of impose order from the top down on society, and those would be the federalists, versus the essentially sort of libertarians who uh, resisted uh, any kind of centralized power being forced on them, and and that would be the anti-federalists. And, and your view uh, kind of cuts across that view. You know, it's it's not entirely the opposite, but whereas Peter Simpson and other champions of the anti-federalists see my ancestor, Alexander Hamilton, as a bad guy, uh, you take the opposite view. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how your view of this differs from people like Peter Simpson and to some extent myself. I've always been a bit of a, a fan of the anti-federalists, too. <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and that, that does take up a big chunk of my book. Uh, the first, I mean, chapter four through chapter nine deal with this in various ways. Um, the point that I, I try to get across, and yeah, I think I'm I'm aligned in spirit with the sense of, uh, you know, emancipation of, for humanity that uh, Simpson um, is obviously governed by and, and many people who, who share this view. Um, I have a different view, and I think that the thesis I try to bring about, and I think the data that I've accumulated in the course of that book um, lends itself very well to my, my argument, is, is the following. Um, if you're going to be able to stand up and do battle with the most centralized form of evil, which is centered at the time in, in Britain, but it was before Britain, this parasite was Venetian. It was a Venetian empire for many hundreds of years after the collapse of Rome. These are ultimately very much the same bloodlines, the same family structures that maintain a continuity of global governance above nation states, above city states, um, but ultimately operate according to very similar principles today as they did during 1776, as they did during, you know, the 1100s, as they did 2000 years ago and divide to conquer, keep the keep the slaves fighting each other, keep people as dumb or as tied to beliefs in their senses as humanly possible so that their identities are as myopic as possible and thus they're more easy to shape as a mob. They're more inclined to not think as sovereign beings for themselves or organize themselves that way and, and thus be moved like a mob, like a herd uh, into the slaughterhouse. And that's sort of like, it's you know, the, the, the techniques for doing it have gotten maybe more refined, but it's the similar, it's the same thing. Um, we see again and again and again. And it's a very centralized thing that utilizes control, a highly centralized control of banking, military deployments, um, uh, intelligence uh, operations, profiling of different courts, uh, carrying out espionage. It's, it's, so it, it, it's a very centralized, powerful beast. So when you had these 13 colonies that were able to organize themselves in defense of their rights in opposition to this globally extended beast – um, you need a weapon that can do battle with it. Now, the uh, having a sovereign nation state that has the a central powerful cap capability is a weapon to be used that could be, if it's taken over by the enemy, it could be used for the for destructive ends. Don't get me wrong. You know, anytime you have power, power in any form, it could do a great good. It's power to do great good or great evil if it's used by the wrong hands or usurped. And I think that that's 
in many ways, the story of, of the U.S. is um, under under great leaders who really did care about the Constitution, who cared about the health of their souls over the health of their their or the wealth of their their fleshly part of themselves um, and who were willing to martyr themselves and sacrifice them, themselves for a higher cause. The powers of a central government, the use of the sovereign nation state have been used to do battle with this empire valiantly and defend humankind um, at other times. Like, you know, after Hamilton is is killed by Aaron Burr um, and the Federalist Party, you're right, is full of aristocrats who don't care about people who largely take over, run roughshod and, you know, run things like the opium wars and and do a lot of bad with the power of central government um, to hurt people. That that's sort of like a back and forth. There's a fight over who's going to control the levers of power. Um, You know, John F. Kennedy used central power in many ways to do a lot of battle. And as, as did Franklin Delano Roosevelt, both of whom died in office under I mean, JFK, obviously, FDR under very mysterious circumstances, um, you know, uh, Lincoln, same thing with his greenbacks when he took power away from a lot of the, uh, the you know, uh, when Lincoln came in, there was something about 7,000 uh, private banks that were issuing over uh, 9,000 different currency notes, um, 1,400 of which were counterfeit. Um, it was a highly... Highly divided nation. There's no central ability to carry out a big project like the Erie Canal or rail projects like nothing could be done in unison. So it was fighting for scraps amongst itself in a, in a divided way. And those who were benefiting immensely were the city of London interests and their minions in Wall Street who had ingrained themselves very deeply in power structures. Um, in my book, I get across some of the battles of Alexander Hamilton and how, for example, the attempt to break up the United States in, was not the first. We didn't see that the first time in the Civil War, which was, again, a British concoction. That's chapter 10, I think, of my book uh, that was anyway. But it, the first example or examples we have of the British operatives working to break up the United States actually comes from 1800, 1799 to 1800, when Aaron Burr had a program when he was running for the presidency against Jefferson. Upon success, his plan was, and this has been proven, to break the free states off of the – as a new confederation, dissolve the constitution and join up with the British-Canadian uh, nation as a new pro-British uh, confederation of the north where the slave power would become a confederation pro-British because Britain was, was of course buying the cotton and maintaining that, that economic foundation of the south. And that didn't work Specifically because Alexander Hamilton fought like hell to make sure Jefferson, his political opponent, became president, who he recognized Jefferson at least was not a traitor. He liked he, – he had a lot of problems with Jefferson, but he's like he's not a traitor like Burr is. And that became more clear because after Burr tried again a second time to break up the United States – and you know, keep in mind, Burr has just created – in 1798, he created – Wall Street by founding the Bank of Manhattan by funneling money that was supposed to go towards it was taxpayer money supposed to go that was supposed to go towards a, a water project and he put that towards the creation of the Bank of Manhattan which is the basis of what later became Wall Street. Um, but Burr tries again in, in 1804 when he's running for governor of New York the the economic engine of the North and his plan again was to break up the uh, <laughs> to do it again to break up the the free states and to join with Canada British Canada. And uh, and have the, the South go free. And, and again, Hamilton intervened, upset Burr's near victory, and Burr never forgave him and created a series of events that led to a, a duel that, that we know that how that went down. Burr, you know, uh, succeeded in finally killing Hamilton, who, who had already set up the National Bank. 
And uh, and Burr was discovered. In, and two years later, he tried again when after the Louisiana Purchase, Burr tried working with Colonel Wilkinson, another trader working for the Habsburgs at the time, um, to set up the a, a kingdom of uh, a Western Confederation where he was he had a plan to join with the British uh, to declare war on Spain, take control of Mexico and New Orleans, and set himself up as as the emperor. Of new of of the Western Confederation, and then the plan was, and this was there was actually a trial. Uh, there were whistleblowers in the inside who got sick of this, and they ble- they blew the whistle before it could be carried out. But the plan was, according to one witness who was part of the conspiracy, was for Je- for Burr to then depose the president, who was Jefferson, and set himself up as president and do the same thing again. But again, because the whistles were blown. Uh, Burr, who, by the way, was or- organizing all of this with Martin Van Buren, one of his key political agents, and it was being orchestrated as headquarters in Andrew Jackson's manor in, I think it was Virginia. That was the headquarters where the American mercenaries were being recruited to be part of this plot. Uh, they, were, they finally, they said, they let Andrew Jackson off the hook at the time. And this is again, 1807, right? And Burr, after being found out, he's given a loan by um, John Jacob Astor for I think it was $40,000 to go covertly to Canada where his nephew was set up as governor general and gave him uh, letters to meet um, Lord Castlereagh and Lord Bentham in uh, in Britain. Bentham was running British intelligence. And for the next five years, Burr is living in Bentham's house, the guy who writes the hedonistic calculus and in defense of pederasty. This is Bentham <laughs> who he spends the next, you know, five years doing opium, having orgies, describing this as the best time of his life in his in his diaries, which are public. And then finally, he's after meeting again and again with British intelligence, Lord Castlereagh. He's deployed back to the United States, and at this point, it's it's a week before the War of eighteen twelve is kicked off, um, and Burr is now set up to run a new uh, strategy to dismantle the Union from within. And it takes some decades for it to finally come to fruition, but when it does, it really does. And this is when Andrew Jackson runs on a populist ticket, who again is an agent of the Burr machine. Burr basically reorganizes his entire machine, brings it back into power, and Burr and and uh, Van Buren uh, lead this thing and uh, finally succeed after a, a battle of, and it's a crazy battle, uh, to kill the Hamiltonian National Bank. And as soon as that happens, you'll find and you can look at the the data, look at the statistics. The U.S. immediately goes into a speculative frenzy. Um, There's the bank panic of 1837, the year after the the National Bank is killed. And immediately states are empowered to issue their own currencies. And again, the nation is set up to be divided to conquered after Andrew Jackson also cleanses the the south of uh, Cherokee and gives that land over and other other nations, too, from the First Nations peoples. Um, and gives that over after a mass genocide of those peoples to, to the the slave power oligarchs to grow cotton and and massively begin a, a mass importation of slaves from Africa with the help of Portuguese and British uh, shipping lanes. And I mean, again, we know where that goes. It takes another twenty years or so for that to create such a tension that it could only result in uh, a break um, of an of a house divided. And thank God Lincoln comes in and, and Lincoln re- revives the Hamiltonian method of, of protectionist policies. That was Hamilton. What he set up was have state control through treasury notes and uh, government issued bonds that people can buy into every citizen through treasuries. And that was what the greenbacks were all about. 
that were the would create a, a monetized system of credit that would be tied to big projects like Lincoln's Transcontinental Railway in the case of the 1820s. It was the Erie Canal and other big projects that grew the U.S. population fourfold within 40 years and turned it from an agricultural backwater feudal place where it was only agriculture after the after the revolution into an industrial hub that was able to challenge British uh, industrial supremacy, which Britain was very insecure about. Lincoln was able to revive all of these protocols. He was actually a defender. Lincoln, when he was working with, with John Quincy Adams in 1838, Lincoln was a young um, congressman from Illinois, and he uh, fought valiantly to try to revive a third national bank, um, which which Harrison, the first American president to die while in office in 1840, he was only in there for three months. Uh, Harrison was a Whig president who uh, Lincoln fought to get elected with with John Quincy Adams. Um, he had he had uh, legislation to revive a third national bank after Jackson had killed it on his desk when he died. It was passed in the Congress and in the Senate, but it never was able to to be signed off by him. That's what Lincoln basically was bringing back online uh, when he became president. And a lot of people just don't know about this whole political economy that then was known. It was dubbed the American system of political economy by Frederick List, the great German uh, protectionist. Um, who had studied the Hamiltonian system and used it to to create the Zollverein, the customs union in Germany, uh, that became really active under von Bismarck later on. Um, but it was all against British free trade. It was all against British mon- monetarism and worshipping of money and markets. It, w- it wasn't based on any of those things. It was based on the idea that p- personal self-interest of the individual citizen could be tied to the, the broader self-interest of the general welfare of the society through great projects and that's sort of like what Qaddafi was doing, too, with his great man-made water projects um, that NATO destroyed in 2011. Very similar in many ways, um, where, you know, you, you, he was issuing a, a gold-backed dinar. It was outside of the control of the international financiers. It was tied to the big project. Um, it, was, it was elevating the quality of capitalism from being just about selfish speculation or, or looking out for your own interests, fuck everybody else, towards elevate the quality of living standards of the nation as a whole – by helping it industrialize, develop a full spectrum economy, um, which is, uh, I think, a lot of people miss <laughs> that <laughs> Libya was acting more American than America was, or even you know China today under the Belt and Road Initiative is acting more American in that sense. It's it's issuing. It's the only part of the world which is operating on Hamiltonian economic principles of long-term uh, productive credit, protectionist policies, and the money is tied to the future productivity, the increase of the the powers of labor. That's interesting. Michael Hudson's theory might uh, work pretty well for this. You know, he argues that since the time of Rome, there's been a, a Western oligarchy that has been uh, plundering uh, the people by refusing to uh, recycle money. That is, they're they're basically charging interest and never having any kind of jubilee. Uh, so that compound interest just kind of keeps exponentially accumulating. And uh, he, he argues the solution to that is a kind of a statist, uh, a state bank solution. And he, he argues that the Chinese 80 percent plus uh, public owned bank is uh, is a possible solution to that. And, and it, ironically, you know, if your interpretation and his uh, are, are correct, we might see the United States heading towards a World War Three to try to stop the rise of China, when in fact China is the country that's embodying the economic. Uh, economic experiment that you say that the U.S. launched under Hamilton 
and the U.S. would be playing the role of the British defending the deep state financiers. It's it's incredibly ironic. And Ellen Brown also uh, has done remarkable work on public banking. Um, I don't know if you've ever had her on your show. Um, yeah, many but, times. Okay. Yeah. No, she's she's done amazing, amazing work on this. But yeah, it's such an irony of history that uh, that we have the U.S., which had put so much. I mean. <laughs> So much effort and lives have been devoted to creating a, a nation that would be capable of harmonizing. Um, I mean, this is what Plato was trying to get at in terms of harmonizing the one and the many um, in many of his dialogues. It's how does, you know, everything that you could that's ponderable exists in a state of being either many, infinite or one. Right. You could take a line. You could imagine that line being infinitely divided. Um, you could it's still one line. Or if you imagine that that line is a string. Then there's certain moments on that string, which if you um, divide them, you like, let's say you cut that string in half and you take you, you pluck half of it. It creates a resonance to the whole. It's a relationship. And so that's an octave, right? The half to the whole, as far as the string is concerned, is an octave, uh, double the frequency. Um, whereas, you know, there's certain places where you'll get a second a hard, hard third, soft third, fourth, fifth, hard six, soft six and get your hard and soft uh, musical scales. And you'll get certain consonances and resonances that sound good. Other ones like the Devil's Interval uh, has a uh, you know uh, an in interference uh, process where they'll they'll uh, you know both strings if you have two strings out of tune with each other they will interfere and cause each other to stop vibrating at a certain point quickly. Others will amplify, and that's just a part of physics. Um, so back to I don't want to go on a tangent, but just to say, Plato made the point that it's important to organize philosophy in such a way that we can rec reconcile the one and the many uh, through the and the infinite together? How do we think about them in the way that they're they're not contradictory to each other? And so individually, we're all part of the, the, the oneness of humanity, right? If you think of like the subject matter of humanity as a one, every individual is an infinitesimal part. There will be potentially infinite, um, you know, we're all finite, we're all mortal, but potentially the species is not, does not have those same constraints, potentially. Um, and the question is, how do we resolve our own self-interest with the whole? Now, if a fascist would say the individual doesn't matter. It's all about the good of the whole. And they will they will use that argument as we see in our, our own worlds around us today, uh, using all sorts of justifications of the greater good to shut down civil liberties. And, uh, you know, it's, it's getting it's getting scary for a lot of people. Um, I think that the person who's is, is does that mean it's always bad to sacrifice your your individual uh pleasures and desires for the sake of a greater good well i don't think so i mean i, I think that john f kennedy was right you know ask not what you can what the country can do for you ask what you can do for the country i think has a certain moral merit to it um but you got to do it for the right reasons you know um and i think that the the constitution and declaration together are on the surface opposing concepts because the Declaration is all about, you know, the inalienable rights of the individual and their their right to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's good. It's great. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Um, the constitutional preamble uh, sets about that the general welfare uh, is 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 the most important thing. That now the general welfare has often been used to destroy personal liberty as an argument. Does that make it incompatible? Not at all. But you, the only way to manifest in, in, real, in a real way that compatibility, that harmonization of the citizen to the, their nation as a whole, past, present, and future, 
is through economic development. You know, the commitment to a big idea of something which is both possible and which is necessary, which is outside of the realm of what exists, that involves making things better. And better meaning, you know, uh, like Franklin Roosevelt got across this four freedoms example. Uh, his conception of what should found the basis of the post-World War II era would be the right to have freedom of conscience, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, freedom from want, um, freedom of speech for all people of all parts of the world. And that, you know, Henry Wallace, his vice president, made the point that, that um, just like in, in 1861, the nation was, was divided as a house divided. And it cannot coexist as half half slave and half free. And it's the same thing that he makes the point in his broadcasts on which are viewable on YouTube. They're beautiful that uh, internationally the world can no longer exist half colonialized and uh, and half free. Something's got to give. And, and there's records of Wallace and Roosevelt and their allies who believed in internationalizing the success of the New Deal and taking the power away from Wall Street and bringing that to ending colonialism internationally. And, and Churchill hated that. He despised that. And Stalin told, you know, FDR's own son on record that um, that Churchill's people within the U.S. deep state had killed his father through poisoning. And, the, and he said, these are the same people who have been trying to kill me because Churchill actually was organized to believe in FDR's vision of, an, of a world of win-win cooperation founded upon. And this is on record. This is provable. A U.S.-Russia-China foundation and alliance and an, interna an internationalization of the Tennessee Valley Authority, these big projects for every nation of the world to stand on their own two feet, develop full-spectrum economies. And unfortunately, we know what happened to the Bretton Woods institutions after you know many of the people who fought the imperialists were labeled red commies. They were purged. They, they died mysteriously like Henry Dexter White uh, died in 1948. Um, fighting and, with know, Wallace. Let me interrupt up to here just to yeah, of course. mention that uh, last week uh, in the first hour of this live show, I had on Sean McMeekin, who's just uh, published a terrific revisionist World War II book called Stalin's War. Mm. And his work and some related things I looked into uh, fleshed out more possibilities around the likely Roosevelt assassination. That is, um, McMeekin's book, makes the case that from the point of view of, let's say, uh, U.S. military commanders and strategists who were interested in pursuing the U.S. national interest and who would have been uh, quite skeptical of Stalin, given uh, Stalin's uh, record of, uh, of mass murder and oppression, among other things, and his, his record of being extremely uh, devious uh, and difficult in his uh, demands of negotiating partners and so on. Well, basically, McMeekin's story is, number one, the Surov thesis is correct, that Stalin had an offensive formation ready to attack Germany, and that basically Hitler, with Operation Barbarossa, saved Europe from a total Soviet takeover. And then secondly, that Roosevelt and, and Churchill, to some extent throughout the war, grossly undermined their respective national interests by kowtowing uh, to Stalin vastly more than would have been uh, the wise thing to do. So given that perspective, which might very well have been the perspective of well-informed uh, militarists and strategists uh, in, in the U.S. decision-making structure, they would have had the kind of typical motivation to murder Roosevelt that some of the same type of people may have had to murder John F. Kennedy, which is they would have viewed Roosevelt 
as insanely naive and as having practically you know wrecked the uh, the U.S. interest in uh, having a, a post-war world that you know wouldn't be like largely Soviet occupied and and under uh, communist dictatorships. So they would have had that kind of strategic reason to assassinate Roosevelt in the same way that hardline right wingers who were pushing. Uh, a, a tougher policy against the Russians. Indeed, they were pushing a nuclear preemptive war against Russia, uh, were among the groups that killed John F. Kennedy. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And then while we're on that uh, line, um, one more sort of counterpoint, you know, to just throw it out there for your consideration, is that the work of Strauss and Howe on cyclical generational theory of U.S. history uh, is, it, it, actually casts a disturbing light on the story that you're telling because you know you're you're giving us heroes from the American Revolution of 1776 the Civil War Lincoln of course uh and then the uh World War II Roosevelt and in the Strauss and House theory each of those moments in this generational cycle every 80 years you get a horrific bloodbath. The American Revolution was the most horrific bloodbath. It's totally sanitized in the history books, but it was a civil war of Americans against Americans, loyalists against rebels or patriots, and they just killed each other and killed each other's families, a horrible bloodletting of civilians against civilians. And then the Civil War was the same thing, another horrific bloodletting. World War II was the same thing, another horrific bloodletting, maybe 70 million people dead. And so the heroes of these episodes in American history are people who are presiding over or involved in these just insane over-the-top episodes of mass murder and butchery. So those are two counterpoint perspectives to throw at you. First, the you know the, the sure. perspective of Sean McMeekin that, sure. that smart strategists in the U.S. Empire might have wanted to kill Roosevelt to hand things over to Truman so they could get a handle on Stalin before Stalin took over the world. And then uh, secondly, that each of these sort of four episodes that you're lionizing from a positive perspective in American history were actually horrific bloodbaths. Okay, yeah. Um, I guess first question have you ever had a chance to uh, interview Grover Fur or read any of Grover Fur's uh, research? No. I'll send you some links. He's an interesting, uh, very interesting figure who I've just begun really plunging into. I've, I've bought several of his books and I've read one on the Trotsky conspiracy. Um, Grover Fur um, is a researcher who has done remarkable firsthand work using collaborators in Russia on uh, going through a lot of archival work, uh, demonstrating that there are <laughs> the idea that tr that Stalin was the evil bastard that we've all been uh, fed might very well be a um, more than uh, full of holes and lies and, and myths that were deployed to undermine something within Russia that was incompatible with a system of global governments under a depopulation agenda of a technocratic dictatorship, um, which was brought in. If you look at 1953 to 54, 55, under Khrushchev, there was, and Bertrand Russell played a big role in this, the formation of a massively expanded uh, technocratic bureaucracy brought in that brought in what was called a cybernetics theory and systems analysis as modes of, of governing the, uh, the machine of governance, um, which was tied very much to stuff that was being also done in China, this could maybe even lead on later on to our second part of our conversation today, as well as in Canada, um, after the purge of a lot of pro-FDR leaders like C.D. Howe, um, 
William Lyon Mackenzie King, who was our prime minister, who had certain affections for what FDR wanted as a post-imperial uh, world system. Um, but I think that, again, there, there, there was – there's a lot of merit to Grover Fursberg, and I'll, I'll just end it there, and I'll just – encourage your readers to maybe check out some of his stuff and also uh i'll send you his link uh, some links and you could see if you want to interview him in the future um so, so that would be I, a revisionist take on stalin yeah but not i mean revisionist i don't know what that word means anymore but anyway i mean it's it's definitely a, a newer take that uses a lot of source material um that gets across also that the trotsky conspiracy was a real conspiracy where trotsky had a program working with a lot of fascists in Japan, as well as a lot of Nazis and other pro-Nazi forces in Ukraine, with a huge, huge network that had a lot of influence uh, to dispose of Stalin in the several times over. Um, and when you look at some of the players at the time who were working with Trotsky um, and trying to rehabilitate him, including Walter Lippmann and other Fabians uh, and Roundtable uh, members in the 1930s before he was before Trotsky was killed. Um, there's certainly a lot to indicate that a broader conspiracy was at hand and there is something above nation states. Uh, it's not like the com it's commonly we're trained to think of nation history as nation states versus nation states as national interest versus national interest. I don't buy that. Um, I think the evidence of history points to a conspiratorial, um, I, I'm a, I, I approach history as a conspiratorial approach to history of a supranational financier oligarchy above nation states, which will, like a parasite, attempt to infiltrate and take over the controls of anything that they can possibly do for the same type of ends, which is absolute control, deep population, um, you know, essentially total hegemony. That's always been sort of the impulse and commitment of the imperial or oligarchical principle of organization. Um, I don't believe in a, in a uh, cyclical or mathematical um, principle of history that is more than I that is more than or trumps the um, the factor of ideas and the battle over ideas that human beings engage in using free will and conspire for good or for bad. I think that in my mind, the battle over ideas is primary of the nature of man, God, government, the good, evil. Like, what are these things? How do you define them? How do you shape your identity around them? How do you carry out? Actions that improve or uh, diminish their expression on the earth while you live for for something higher. And again, conspiracies are not always bad. I think that there is such a thing as good conspiracies. In my book, you know, chapter one, I, I try to get at that uh, Ben Franklin. And, and I mean, you know, a lot of these people we, who we often naively celebrate falsely, we celebrate them for, for the wrong reasons and we hate them in other narratives for the wrong reasons. But sometimes people who we, we, we love shouldn't be loved. And certain people that we love, we love them for the wrong reasons. We don't love them for the right reasons. And Ben Franklin had organized an international network of co-conspirators stretching all the way to, to, uh, from Russia's highest echelons from, um, you know, Ekaterina Dashkova, the, the, the president of the Russian Academy of Sciences who made him the, the, the president, uh, a member of the Russian Academy. And he made her the member of his philosophical Society to um, Catherine the Great, to uh, the Muslim leader um, um, Tipu Sultan and his father, um, whose name I'm forgetting all of a sudden, Ali, um, who had organized a mass rebellion in India in the the uh, the Mysore rebellion against the British 
And they wrote letters to the Continental Congress saying we are one in this fight against a, against our common enemy. This is in India, and this rebellion lasted years. Uh, the the Indian the Muslim uh, fighters uh, absorbed twenty percent. They redirected twenty percent of the British military um, battleships to try to fight them in in a second war, a second front that that gave the American uh, farmers who were fighting uh, a margin of of you know uh, breathing space that was very much needed to win that war, which, which again required the help of many people in amongst Marquis Lafayette and the French, um, the French Germans. Scharn, I mean, you had the Polish leaders there who went on to lead the Polish uh, Republican movement in the in the 1790s. You had Irish leaders who went on to lead the Irish Re- Re- rebellions in 1798, 99. They were all people who had cut their got you know cut their teeth fighting in the American Revolution. Um, so you, I mean, it was an international, you had Morocco, you know, uh, the emperor of Morocco, Sidi, Sidi Mohammed, um, gave protection to the American sheep shipping from Barbary pirates who were on the payroll of British intelligence. I mean, the British were, were supplying Intel to various Barbary pirates to kidnap American, uh, ships and Sidi Mohammed was the unique leader who said, no, he was the first to recognize the American Colonies as an independent nation in 1777 before any other nation. That was Morocco, right? Um, and and uh, there were letters of thanks from the Continental Congress to him. So it was an international conspiracy for the good. It took it took time, many years to organize this sort of thing. Um, it, it, so it's not yeah, only evil, right? For the good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And well, I, I really should, want people to appreciate your, that. We should move huh? to your article soon. Maybe a segue here could be if if we, you know, you don't have to accept Strauss and Howe's theory in you know swallow the whole thing at once but it's certainly is interesting that we have these 80 year intervals uh for 20 year generations we have an 80 year interval from 1780 uh, the revolution to 1860 the civil war to 1940 world war ii to now we're right in the middle of 2020 well we're a year past that and guess what happened in 2020 the biggest catastrophe and you could say a bloodletting uh, many millions dead around the world and it may have emerged from a neocon American bio attack on China. I think that's the best uh, supported hypothesis out there. And people can read Ron Unz's work on that. So if that's the case, then we have these previous three episodes, the revolution, the civil war and World War II or the world wars, but primarily World War II. In each of those three cases, this kind of uh, heroic American element prevailed. But now we have the anti-heroic element in power here, the neocons and the international financial elite uh, gearing up for war on China, which would be World War III, I suppose. And your article traces some of the machinations of this financier elite as it tried to get its hooks into China in the uh, 1970s and 80s Mm -hmm. and failed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're referring to my my article, uh, how China's Gorbachev was flushed in 1989. Yeah, um, that's correct. I mean, as far as the 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 cycles, I don't want to dwell on that. But there's also World War One and the Vietnam War that were huge bloodlettings as well that don't fall into the 80 year uh, cycles. But you know, whatever. I mean, as far as yeah, they're the, the, the yeah, oligarchy... transformational though. I mean, these these 80 year cycles, these those moments were were more transformational, I would argue, than Vietnam or World War One. Yeah, I mean, my, the oligarchy always wants the same thing. You know, it, it, they they are often not successful. Sometimes they are uh, when they are subverted from their desires of getting what they want, which is always global mass kill. You know, p- 
population control, world government, get rid of nation states, reduce the population. Like they always kind of want this. It's a dark age movement. It's a, it's a movement that, that values. That's why they call themselves things like the round table movement. You know, they glorify and romanticize these periods of the medieval past when the peasants knew their role as talking cows and the, the you know, the elites knew their roles, uh, having their orgies in their castles. And they, they just love it. And they don't realize that, you know, life for the average nobility in the uh, medieval period without soap or hygiene was still like <laughs> not very good. You know, you're going to die of food poisoning probably <laughs> despite the fact that you, you had your smelly orgies uh, with no soap. Um, so the point is it's a romantic, um, you know, ivory tower movement that is misanthropic as a religion. Um, they in the modern era have co-opted and utilized some technologies that were created uh, despite them to attempt to accelerate their own uh, advancement of getting rid of nation states. And yeah, in the case of my article um, on the flushing of the China Gorbachev project, I mean, I wrote this originally because there's so many good people I encounter and I know who get a sense of the Great Reset agenda and the conspiracy to undermine Western civilization. They don't like it. They're troubled by this, this fact. But because they don't know their history, they don't know the dynamics at play. They're very susceptible to a lot of the, the narratives, the psyops that have been deployed into the zeitgeist to convince them that the ultimate evil hand behind everything from COVID-19, the pandemic, the Great Reset, the evil being behind the, the color revolution in the United States even is China. And, uh, you know, you have Mike Lindell doing his thing. And I mean, Steve Bannon is active. And, and if you look at a lot of these things, again, it's all a misdirection that's been done the same way that a, a, a narrative was cooked up to try to, you know, link up John, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald to Russia and, and blame Russia for killing Kennedy. And that was the effort to try to, you know, spin that tale um, there. And there was other narratives, too, that were that were set up too, you know, mafia or oil men or whatever. But the point is, there was something something is higher controlling these narratives. So I wanted to, to nip that in the bud. And the um, the fact is, China, unlike the West, got rid of their Soros projects. The Soros infiltration of China was was ended in 1989 when the coup d'etat, the color revolution to overthrow the Chinese government was uh, thwarted. Um, that was Tiananmen Square. It was not supposed to be just like one little thing. The plan was to use Tiananmen Square as a color revolution. Gene Sharp, the guy who did How to Start a Color Revolution um, from the Albert Einstein Institute, was on the ground for seven days during Tiananmen Square before it got really violent. And it was filled entirely with agent provocateurs, much like we had with Ukraine or Georgia or various other modern, you know, artificial revolutions. It was NED funded. The NED had several offices um, under uh, James Lilly, who was the CIA uh, officer who became ambassador, who was coordinating this with George Soros. Now, George Soros, I'm going a little fast because I know we're almost out of time, but George Soros by this time had uh, set up two major think tanks one of which direct both sponsored by and one directly by uh, or co-run by um, Zhao Jiang, who is the secretary general of the Chinese Communist Party, um, who attained great power in 17, uh, 19, 1978. Um, he rose to become again the to the highest ranks, the secretary general. He was going to be the heir apparent of Deng Xiaoping. Um, everyone knew he was about to take over. He was the guy who had brought in Milton Friedman. Um, and met, met Friedman on several occasions since the opening up began in 79. He brought in Alvin Toffler. He was a follower of Toffler's transhumanist futurism, uh, futurist theories of the future shock and third wave. Uh, he, he made sure that his networks of young uh, brainwashed economists who had, who had been, you know, 
given scholarships by Soros to study in Harvard in the West and then brought back as little, you know, zombies. Um, he made sure that Toffler's works were translated into Chinese and spread to brainwash more people of the of the elite. Um, these ideas are very much tied to things like um, the Great Reset Agenda today, which is all about the idea that the third wave, the, the civilization can be broken up into three waves. The first being agricultural, uh, feudal, uh, pre-nation state. Then you had the industrial second wave uh, nation state that involved democracies, which you know evolved thoughtlessly, like a like the forces of Darwinian evolution, into a third wave of technocracy, a uh, post-nation state. Uh, techno, uh, I think of it as more of techno-feudalism that involves bioengineering, the merging of human beings with machines, uh, AI. And so Zhao Jing was all into this stuff. And uh, so in my article, I go through a lot of this, how this contaminated the 1980s, and he was being celebrated as the Gorbachev of China. So the difference was Russia was not as smart. They didn't realize what was going on or didn't have the moral ability to organize themselves to expel this thing before it took over under Gorbachev and then later Yeltsin. And we know what Perestroika, Glasnost, all of these things did by raping Russia in the 90s and bringing in a new breed of oligarch, um, which is still being – I mean it's not fully purged yet, okay? It's still – people have to I, – I, I thank God for Putin having you know, risen onto the stage of history and, and probably saving all of our lives several times over already. But he's still got a fight on his hands. Uh, China was smarter and they purged this thing before it got completely out of hand when Zhao Jiang was supposed to be the savior of the, the, the people. The people, by the way, had you know, been filled with Robespierre provocateurs armed with the CIA, by the CIA with Molotov cocktails, actual weapons. You can see pictures of some of these younger provocateurs with uh, weapons. And uh, you know, it was not a massacre. There were not thousands of people who died. If anything, reliable estimates are about two to 300 people who died in the entire thing. And many of them were PLA soldiers who were not armed. And you could see the bodies of dozens of PLA soldiers burnt to a crisp that turns the, the gut. Um, and many of these, these people who did that dirty work when it failed to succeed. And again, when it failed to succeed, uh, Zhao Jiang was put under house arrest where he remained until he died. And all of his allies were either arrested who worked with Soros or, or escaped to the West. Soros was totally banned for life and China began a new project of rehabilitating and, and getting onto a right a real path of development to, to deal with its population issues and other things through development. Um, now in Tiananmen Square, the most violent young people who did the, the dirtiest work were all uh, gotten out. They, they all escaped under Operation Yellowbird already kind of a racist title given by the CIA and MI6, but even on Wikipedia, it openly is acknowledged to have been run by the MI6 and the CIA with the assistance of Hong Kong-based triads that were always created by the by the British um, since the 19th century. And they basically got these young guys out on boats to Hong Kong and then flew them out to Canada and the United States, where most of them got scholarships at Ivy League colleges and created the foundation for a nucleus of resistance against uh, the big bad Chinese Communist Party. And I think today I haven't done a lot of the work, but I think if anybody digs into it a little bit, they will find that a lot of the, the people behind things like Epoch Times, the Falun Gong, other CIA outfits um, that run a lot of these these anti-China narratives, you'll find connected to uh, to this grouping that that, you know, escaped in 89 so. They don't seem to have very much success, though, in trying to slow or stop the rise of China or affecting China's way of doing things. Oh, you know, they, they, they've they they've done things like 
China, for example, had a conference in 96 on the, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, creating a new Silk Road um, as a global – as their new foreign policy program, and it was subverted. Um, and it was subverted largely by George Soros, who created the Asian – uh, the Asian crisis, uh, you know, by speculating against Asian currencies of all of the neighbors of China and uh, sending everybody into a tailspin for a couple of years. And so it, it drew up, it killed the credit, it killed the, it killed the financial stability needed for a lot of these big projects that require stability, long-term thinking to be carried forward. Uh, so Soros got his revenge in some ways in 1996, 97, 98, uh, by, by putting a wrench in the gears. And it took China a while for you know, Xi Jinping to come around and finally say, no, now's the time to do it in 2013. And since then, yeah, it's been a creative global powerhouse of change, which has constantly changed the rules of the game. And a lot of these systems analysts, these social engineers, these behaviorists who who tried to come in with Zhao Ziyang and, and did take over after Stalin died in Russia. I mean, they've been purged in many ways, but this is a, a, this is what's behind the Great Reset ideology. Um they hate changing the rules of the game. They want to control the rules like dungeon masters. They're like it's like bratty dungeon masters from playing Dungeons and Dragons, who like they 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 go into a rage if you if you break the rules of the game that they control. And that's what China is doing. It's creatively constantly creating changes in the future because it's future oriented and the oligarchy only controls the present. That's why they got to get us to adapt to the present like little animals in a Darwinian cage. And they don't like it when we actually are creative the way China is or the way the U.S. used to be <laughs> under its better years. Well, it's unfortunate that the uh, kind of anti-China propaganda wing that you just described has had so much success in infiltrating alternative media where they planted the China did it meme around COVID very quickly. And it yeah. looks like they're picking that up again and running with it. But we don't really have enough time to go into the details of that. I would just uh, urge the listeners to be uh, very skeptical of the anti-China propaganda, uh, which is, you know, it exists for very obvious reasons, uh, geopolitically and so on. And I think your work, Matt, is uh, essential in helping uh, break through the uh, superficial kind of level of CCP behind all evil, uh, great reset is to turn us into China, all that kind of nonsense, and, and get a more balanced and nuanced and realistic appraisal of what's going on. Well, I think we hit the end of the show. So thank you so much, Matthew Eric. Uh, your new book, The Clash of Two Americas, is a very, very interesting take on U.S. history, and it's different from anything I've encountered before. And I really appreciate your making me think. <laughs> and and your, <laughs> your article, How China's Gorbachev Was Flushed in 1989, is also equally informative. I didn't know anything about Zhao Ziyang. I can't even pronounce his name, uh, but I guess now I do. So thank you so much, Matt. Keep up the great work. Hey, thanks, Kevin. So it's a pleasure to be on. Yep. Take care. Bye. Bye. That's Matthew Errett. I'm Kevin Barrett at truthjihad.com, where you can subscribe at Substack. And you can click on the radio schedule link to find links related to these shows and everything else I do. So thanks for listening. Support revolution.radio. See you all next week. Yeah.